So church family, so lacquer for me to be able to stand in front here and talk to you and see some of you and know that some of you are online. Um, it's, it's the, nor- the more normal is just feeling more wonderful every day. I, I just, I love it so much. And thank you for being here. Thank you for deciding to come this morning um, and deciding to watch. We know that this is something we do because God asks us to do it, but we still have to do it. For the next two weeks, I'm going to be talking about something that often we avoid. Um, And we've entitled the series, Not About the Numbers. It's not about the numbers. We're gonna be talking about that old money thing. And uh, the reason we do it is that God's word is full of words about money. Having said that it's not about the numbers, I'm gonna do one of those pastor things and immediately talk about some numbers. But, but I wanna talk about not you and those numbers, I wanna talk about me and those numbers. I wanna show you a few numbers that make me worry, that sometimes make me anxious, that sometimes make me wonder if God is really gonna do what he said he's gonna do by caring for me and looking after me and providing for me. Here are three numbers that I worry about. The one is uh, 23 rand and 99 cents. You all know, I mean, it may not be exactly right depending on your coastal or whatever, but you you know what that number's about. And I don't know about you, but that number makes me sweat sometimes. Another number that I often am given and I worry about is that number nine million. Nine million is the number that the guy who helps me with my finances says to me, I need in the bank if I'm going to retire and live at the same kind of lifestyle level. <laughs> yeah, I know, nine bar. It, you know, I, I often laugh when I'm stressed. I mean, that's what he says. Apparently, that's what I'm gonna need if I wanna just retire and just go, yep, I'm gonna, nine million, good luck. And there's another number that I worry about sometimes, it's 685,000. And that is our church's monthly budgeted income to meet all our running costs. And I'm just be honest with you, sometimes I worry about those numbers. There's other numbers I also worry about, but they're not important today. Can I tell you why I worry about those numbers? Because like you, we all live in an upside down world. We live in a world where we see things from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. Now God is transforming us so that we become more like him. He's transforming us so that we will look at the world like he looks at the world and will live in the world based on his principles and not our principles. But that's a journey. That is a journey learning to live in God's world and with God's thoughts rather than with my thoughts. And the beautiful thing about it is that I've discovered in my whole life that God often uses that thing called money to teach me incredible lessons about him, to practically teach me how to stop living in the upside down world. You see, because when God gave us money, he gave, the, he gave to each of us a gift that is meant to be used for good, 
for provision, for care, for justice, and for joy. That's what God's provision is meant to do for us and for the world that we live in. But it seems that so often those very things, that very provision of God, that thing called money, produces anxiety, conflict, fear, evil, and injustice. Isn't that true? And the only way that can change is by us allowing God to change us so that we see things from his perspective. And so I don't want to look at numbers because numbers aren't going to help us see the, way the, world, see the world the way God wants us to. It's, it's words that will do that. And it's not just any words. It's the, the word of God. It's what God has to say. It's, it's what he has to say to us and to the world around us about money and, and, and what's important about it and what we should focus on. And I've said it already and I'm gonna say it again. I've just seen how over and over and over again God has used what he says about money to help me live in his world rather than in, in my own brain. And that doesn't mean it solves every problem, it doesn't. But, but I love the journey. And so the next two weeks I want us to, to share that journey of God's words about money. And I want us to start with the right people. Because that's who God is. When God talks about finances in his word, there's two groups of people that he talks to. And I think mostly in church world, we end up talking to individuals, to the individual disciples of Jesus. But God often talks to his disciples as a collective. He talks, when he, often when he uses the term you, he doesn't mean you as an individual, he means us as God's people. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, over and over when he talks about money and, and the way they should use their wealth, he's talking to them as a collective, not just as individuals. And so we're going to divide this thing up into two sections. This week we're gonna to talk to God's people as a collective. Let's see what God says to all of us collectively about the finances and the, and the wealth and the assets and what God has given us as a church, as his people. And then next week we'll look at God's words to individuals. And the truth is God has always spoken to his people as a collective. God goes through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, saying things to his people. Sometimes it's in the way of advice, sometimes it's just straight up instructions. And I want to just quickly skip over, well, I want us quickly to look at four passages. And I'm not gonna try and unpack each of them in detail because I'd love you to go back and look at them in a bigger context. But these four passages will give us a great overview of some of the most important words that God has for his people. And so I want you to hear, not as an individual this morning, I want you to listen as us, all of us, 
every single one of us together. So the first passage comes from Exodus chapter 25. It, it, it happens when God's people are leaving Egypt and they move, they're going to the promised land and they're now in the desert. They've ended up in the desert for 40 years because they've disobeyed God. And God is setting up the first house that he's gonna live in. It was called a tab- tabernacle and it was a tent. And they were gonna use that as the place where they would go to collectively worship God. And God gives them some instructions. Exodus chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept contributions from all those whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat hair from, for cloth, tanned ramskins and fine goatskin leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stone and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Then later on in the book of Deuteronomy, the people have now moved into the promised land. They are now settling into the promised land. And what happens there is there's a transition from a tabernacle to a temple. But, but because they're now permanent, the way God expects them to worship and contribute is slightly different to what it was in Exodus. And so here's one passage that talks about what God expects from his people. Deuteronomy 12, verse five to seven. Rather, you must seek the Lord your God at the place of worship he himself will choose from among all the tribes, the place where his name is to be honored. There you will bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, your offerings to fulfill a vow, your voluntary offerings, and your offerings of the firstborn animals of your herds and flocks. There you and your families will feast in the presence of the Lord your God, and you will rejoice in all you have accomplished because the Lord your God has blessed you. Now let's move to the New Testament because often people kind of, I know it was different in the Old Testament, it was. But, but I believe the principles remain the same. So let's look in Acts. So Acts, early on in Acts, there's no church buildings as such yet. The church is still brand new and mostly church meetings happen in people's homes or sometimes out in the countryside and then from time to time or regularly they would meet in homes and in either the temple if they were in Jerusalem or they'd meet in synagogues which belonged to the Jewish community. All the believers, Acts chapter four, were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owed owned was not their own. So they shared shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Okay, so this is something that happens in Acts. Now we go to the book of Corinthians. It's a bit later than this passage. There are established churches all around and and Paul is kind of coordinating what's happening between these different churches. And different churches are helping each other and, and 
Different churches are meeting in different ways. But here's some principles again. 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men who you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable to, to me to go also, they will accompany me. Okay, so there's four pictures, four scenarios where God speaks about money directly to his people. Now there's lots of others, and I'm gonna touch on a few of them, but, but as I go through these words about money, I want you to try and get your mind to go back to places in these passages that I've shared with you. So the first word is, is, is management. <laughs> I know that sounds strange, but the truth is God wants the money that he gives for his work to be managed a certain way. And you'll see that there's some very clear descriptions, especially in that last passage, about Paul saying you must do it like this. But if you read throughout the Old and New Testament, you will see from time to time, God speaks to his people and is encouraged about the way they're managing finances. In another, other places, he gets quite angry, especially with priests, and with those in power who misuse the finances that God's family collect. It's why Jesus gets really angry when he clears the temple, because collection of finances is being misused by people rather than used the way God wants it. So God is incredibly serious about how the finances that he collects, that he gives to his people, that he gifts to us are to be used. And the key word there in how it's managed, it needs to be managed according to the character of God. It needs to be managed in accordance with the character of God. Now, the truth is, I could go on all day about the character of God, but I just want to highlight a few things, a few really important principles that every church family needs to live by, I believe, that are taught, taught in Scripture. The first one is honesty. That we, we, we serve a God who is truthful. We serve a God who, who wants the truth to be known and whose character is that of truth. And so for God it is incredibly important that the finances that, that both are contributed by people and are used are dealt with in an honest and God-honoring way. And in fact, not just the not just God's people's collective finances, but also their finances from outside. In fact, often God says, you try to be honest with me in this place, in the temple, and do all the right sacrifices, but out there, you're not being honest. You're being corrupt in the way you're dealing with people um, that aren't part of God's people. And so honesty in every level is incredibly important for God when it comes to our collective finances. Transparency. Do you, do you see what Paul says? He says, guys, choose people who you know will deal well with this money. I always feel nervous. Whenever I'm dealing with a, with a charity or with a church organization that tries to, to, to hide 
let's be honest, what money is used for, where it comes from, and where it's going. God wants transparency. He, you know, when he asks for those gifts in that very first passage, there's some very high-end luxury goods, we'll get to that, that he's asking for from a bunch of people who are traveling through the desert. He's very clear, he says, this is what it's gonna be used for. That gift that you gave, you will be able to come and see where it was put into the tabernacle. Transparency. Thirdly, the idea that God's finances must be used selflessly. That, that what God wants from us as a, as a church family, as God's community, must be used for everybody. The idea that certain individuals can become wealthy above the norm of, the, of, the, of God's people that they serve and, and become personally enriched because of what God's people contribute is an, an anathema to God. He, 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 he purposely set up, especially in the Old Testament, a system so that the priests could live like the people around them. Not, not accumulating wealth. God is a selfless God. Debbie read that passage earlier on about what Jesus did and what he gave. And God wants us as his people to manage his money selflessly and for the benefit of all, not just for a few select individuals. So the word manage, honest, transparent, and selfless. But God also has some very specific instructions of where the money is supposed to come from. When he talks to his people collectively, he gives clear words on where the money is supposed to come from. It's supposed to come from all of God's people. That's where it comes from. I, I have lots of stories, both personal and other people that I know, of God's miraculous provision. I mean, I know lots of stories when people have been desperate and they just needed something in a moment and God provided them. Not one of those stories involves money falling out of heaven. Not one. Not one. Every time God provides, he provides through his people. Somebody does an EFT or puts their hand in their pocket and takes it out. And, and God is saying that this, this provision for, for my house and for my people must come from every single individual. But again, there's the words that God says, this is what it must look like. When we give to God, when God's people give, they must give sacrificially. Remember I talked about the fact that God uses money to teach us how to become more like him. And we, we serve a God who sacrifices. We serve a God who gives. He gives more than we deserve. Who gave himself so that we could know him. And so when God asks us to give, the, the truth of the element of sacrifice is always there, or should always be there. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't give sacrifices out of your abundance, you most certainly should. But this idea that it becomes easier and easier to give to God the longer you live around, it's just not true. 
Sometimes it becomes harder because God is transforming our characters. It's always a sacrifice. When God asks people to give, he also asks for a commitment. He says, I'm your God and you are my people and we must show a mutual commitment. And so this isn't something that God expects us to do from time to time when it's okay for us to do it. It's something that God says we must do regularly as a commitment. Do you, you see that first passage I read? It said, when you ask for these gifts, let people decide. Let people decide. This is not something that God holds a gun to people's heads for. But he says, this commitment, this willingness to sacrifice, this, this fairness principle must come out of your heart, not out of being forced to do something. So the money comes from all God's people, whether it's the little girl putting the one rand. I'm a bit older than Debbie. I can vaguely remember at the Sunday school in Whitbank singing a song, Hear the Pennies Dropping. Listen how they fall. Yeah, I'm that old. So the money comes from God's people. But God is also quite specific about how the money is actually to be collected, how the money actually arrives in the place where God is going to use it. And, and we see that in that second passage. We see things like offerings, sacrifices, um, tithes, paying of vows, a whole lot of things, but they can quite easily be, be kind of settled into three categories. God expects God, his people to tithe. Now, I, I'm not, we don't teach tithing in this church as a law. We teach it as a principle. That if you are struggling with what is a reasonable sum to be able to give to God, then we say God's principle is 10%. But we don't teach it as a law. We teach it as a principle, which is a very different thing. But the idea is, that regular money that I give to God out of my every day, the money that I have, the money that I get as a salary or as a pension or through the business that I operate, it comes, there's an amount that I give to God as a matter of course, as a matter of regular every day, the tithe. Then there are offerings. There are those times when I bring something to God because, because I want to say thank you to God. God has given me something extra. God has given me something more. God has blessed me in a particular way and, and I want to express that out of my heart to God. I want to show God and, and the world around me how good God has been to me. Now again, this is, remember this isn't so that I could show off because we'll see what God wants his money used for in a moment. It's not so I can show off, but it's so that I can show other people and myself that God is good to me and I'm thinking about who God is. And then there are sacrifices, and the name says it. It's sometimes God asks us for things that are hard to give. But because God has some special purpose that's going on, he goes, I, I, I need you to contribute here. 
I mean, that temple, that, that tabernacle, if you read that list of stuff that God said, I want to go in my tabernacle, those are luxury goods. <laughs> I mean, these guys, were, these guys were nomads. They were traveling through the desert. And the kinds of things they were being asked for weren't what you had in your grocery cupboard that day. They were the family treasures. They were things that, that were, were meant for special occasions. And so God, the word is, is, is tithe and offer and sacrifice. Why? Well, it's to teach us some things. Firstly, it's to teach us faith. It's to teach us that our dependence is not on what we have, but on who God is. To teach us that God provides. That, that there are times when I give up the stuff I've stored for the future because God is telling me you need to learn to trust in me, not in yourself or in your <clears throat> nine million. Yeah, that's a crazy number. Well, it's easy for me not to trust in that number because I'm never going to get there. But anyway, you, 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 it's, it's that. God is teaching us faith in him. God is teaching us discipline. That idea of tithing is to teach God's people that one of the fruits of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, faithful, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, self-control, that discipline, that being part of God's family means I have to be disciplined in the way I give. I don't just wait for those special moments, but, but part of being a follower of Jesus is to be disciplined and to give from what God has given me, no matter how big or small it is for me in that moment. We also are being taught generosity, that we serve a God who is generous. We live in a world that is so unequal. There are so many um, ridiculously wealthy people and so many poor people. And it's not because the world doesn't have enough resources for everybody. It's not. The world has enough food in it to feed all seven billion of us. It has enough to provide because God is a generous God. And God wants to teach his people that they in turn must be generous. And so he gives us these opportunities to tithe and to offer and to sacrifice. And then finally, and I've said it already, that idea of dependence, that, that actually who, who we need to rely on is God. And it's so easy to want to rely on ourselves. I'm going to share one story about myself and dependence. When I became a pastor, I knew I would never be able to afford to send my children to university. I just knew it. And it, it, I was okay with that. I knew God was calling me to do something, but I knew. And I saw my fellow pastors and I just knew. Well, God knew something different. All of my kids have gone to university. They've all got more than one degree, and I haven't had to go into debt to pay for that. God provided, because he wants us to learn dependence on him, not on our own resources and our own strength. So, how should the money be collected? Then, what should God's money be used for? Because God has some, and this is the last set of words, God actually gives very clear instructions about what he wants the money that we as his family together have, that he provides for all of us as his people. He wants it to be used for specific things. 
And the first thing he wants it to be used for is to glorify him, to glorify God, to demonstrate God's character to the world. He wants us to take what he gives us and use it in ways that when people see how it's used, they see a picture of who God is. And that we see in things like buildings. Uh, And I know there's a big debate about wasteful church buildings. But I know that often I've been into a beautiful church building and just gone, wow, God is amazing. God is amazing. That tabernacle would have been the greatest tent ever built in the history of the world. It displayed God's character. The artwork inside there was meant to tell something to people that look about who God is. That's why we've got stained glass windows and doors. So that people can look and go, oh, God is like that. It's meant to show God's greatness that God is a good God, that he's great and he's worthy of being praised. It's not just in the buildings, but it's in art, it's in music, it's in worship. God gives very specific instructions in the Old Testament about worship. Do it like this, make these kinds of instruments, use that, why? So that people as they come together can see the greatness of who God is. And so it's meant to show God's glory, his greatness, his holiness, his majesty, his beauty, and his glory. And when we use it for other things, we end up in a sense robbing God because we we turn it into stuff for ourselves and not for those for the one who we serve. He doesn't just want us to use it for his glory, but he also instructs us to use what he gives us for the provision for those who work full time in God's work. So again, I talked about the Old Testament, where the Levites, were they didn't have farms. They weren't given a, a tribal piece of land. God says they have no inheritance, And so some of what you bring to the temple must be used so that they can live, so that their children can be provided for, so that they can eat and have homes and have places to be my full-time people. In the New Testament, again, we get told there are some who will serve in particular ways and I want the money that that we have together to be used to help them be able to do what they do. When God does that, he he demonstrates his character of care. These people don't have the ability to go out there and farm or to run their own businesses and, and, and they need to be cared for. They need to be looked after. They need to be able to have what the rest of us have. Also, the the idea of security that God wants us as his people to have some some form of security, some form of being able to care for ourselves and for those around us. God wants us to use that money to show people that work is worth it, that all of us have worth. Those of us who work in, in jobs that physically produce something and those of us who work in jobs that spiritually produce something. Both of those are are things that are worth something. 
and God wants to demonstrate the fact that there is worthiness in working. And finally, God's provision, that God does care, that God practically cares for individuals, all individuals, those who who work full-time for him and those who work full-time for him not in the community, that God provides. God also wants his money and he gives very specific instructions here for helping the poor. Over and over again, we read both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that money was collected by God's people to provide for the poor. That's what was happening in Galatians. There was a famine um, and there was persecution in Jerusalem and so the other churches were collecting money so that the church in Jerusalem could survive. But we see over and over again that God reminds his people that his people are supposed to care for the poor. Now, truthfully, often we abdicate that job to the government because, hey, that's why we pay taxes. And we should pay taxes and the government should do it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it too. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament show that God's people are called to help the poor, and honestly, often they do it much better than other institutions do it. In Isaiah 58, we are reminded of this. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, remember this, you is a collective you. God is talking to all of his people. With a pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Why does God want us to use money for the poor? Well, because God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice, and justice is a practical thing. And sometimes people are poor through no fault of their own. That happens. And God is a God of justice. And so he wants his, his people to show justice. He also wants his people to show mercy because God is merciful. Sometimes people are poor because of the things they've done themselves. And God doesn't say you shouldn't help those people. You should help them differently because you, you need to show them that God is not just a God of justice, he's also a God of mercy and of grace. But above all, God is a God of love. And not theoretical, cerebral, or chemical kind of reaction feeling love, but a God of practical love. That love is demonstrated in practical, everyday ways by feeding people and helping them come out of poverty and providing for them when they cannot provide for themselves. God wants us to help the poor because he wants to teach us about justice, mercy, grace, and love. And then finally, God wants the money that he gives to all of us to be used as a light. To be used as a light so that other people can know who God is. To be used to spread God's kingdom, to take it beyond the walls of just us here sitting here together on a Sunday, to go over to 17 Langford Road and to be a light to a community struggling with addiction. 
to be able to, to put food in food parcels and go to people to be a light, to be able to send missionaries to Mozambique and to Kenya and to other parts of the world so that other people can know who God is. And God wants us to use our finances to do that. And the early church did that a lot. They kept giving gifts away so that other people could know who God is. Why? Because God wants us people to know that, that, we, that God loves them, that God's kingdom is way beyond just ourselves. God wants a kingdom that grows. And over and over again, we see God judging his people when they stop doing that. When they go, no, no, this, what God has given us, is for us. It's to make us better. And God says, no, it's for everybody. You must be a lot. Before I end, I need to point out some things that God says about what happens when we obey these words. When we follow these very clear instructions about where the money comes from, how it's to be used, and what it's to be used for. Words like blessing. Let's go back and look at some of those passages that I read. That God pours out a blessing. In fact, it's one of the few places God challenges these people. He says, guys, test me on this one, and you will see if you do this, that you will be blessed. We experience, and other people experience, the goodness of God. Remember the last time you went through something really difficult? How you were hopefully overwhelmed by God's people in helping you. I've just been through that. It's like, you're, what is that? It's the goodness of God being demonstrated. And it's, it's, it happens when we, when we do God's thing God's way. The word love, justice, faith, hope, and joy. God tells his people that when you do this the way I say you must do it, when you, when you spend money the way I say you must spend it, when you give the way I say you must give, as a community, these words will follow you, blessing, goodness, love, justice, faith, hope, and joy. It'll turn upside down. It will turn upside down. You will begin to experience the world the way God wants you to. There's a word we have in this church for that, transformed. Transformed. As we together obey God, he transforms us. And we end up taking that thing that causes us worry and anxiety and stress and pain, and it begins to create love and joy and peace and hope and justice. Why? Because it reflects the character of God. God. 